Here is Rick Smith. So today, ProPublica, they uh, reported that a 16-year-old Guatemalan girl uh, died at the border in Border Patrol custody uh, at one of the quote-unquote processing centers. I, I love how we've, we've, we've kind of uh, taken that, uh, that, that jail, that lockup mentality. We've, it's just a process center. Uh, evidently uh, didn't bother giving the person medical care, uh, had a serious flu, and, uh, well, put them, as we've, as we've learned, uh, in these horribly cold rooms with, uh, with virtually, you know, caged, like, it, it's just horrible uh, what we've done. And the thing is, is, you know, this is one of those moments where, you know, you look at our history. Uh, this is going to, in, in 50, 60 years, they're going to look back at this. Our grandchildren are going to look back at this and go, what exact, what, what were you doing? Uh, kind of like we look back now during the FDR years, uh, and as much as I'm a fan of FDR and the New Deal, uh, the black stain on FDR's record is the fact that in 1942, uh, he signed Executive Order 9066, which created detention centers, internment camps uh, for Japanese Americans that f- ripped them from their homes, ripped them from their families, and put them in these camps in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a stain on our history, and yet... Uh, man, well, we just don't learn about it, which is why I'm glad that my next guest has written this great book. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say great book, but this is amazing book behind barbed wire searching for Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II. Uh, it's an incredible picture book, as well as uh, lots of great information uh, written by Paul Kategny. Uh Paul, thanks for taking time for us. Yeah, hey, thank you, Rick, for talking to me. Um, you know, what made you jump into the middle of this? I mean, we're, you know, I look at where we are politically today, and uh, I, I can't imagine that things were much different back then. What made you go and look for these these people in this book? Well, um, this has been a 14-year journey for me, but it all started out, my, my, my parents, my, grand, my dad, my aunt, my grandparents were photographed by Dorothea Lang when they were being um, forcibly removed from their home in Oakland and sent to these camps we're talking about in 1942. Oh, wow. So this is, you know, this directly affects, this is something, this is your life, this is your history, this is your your ancestors as well. Oh, for sure. And, um, you know, and there's so many, and Dorothy Lang was uh, one of the famous documentary photographer, and there's over 900 of her photographs in the National Archives documenting, documenting the, the forced removal and then of the Japanese Americans on the West Coast, and um, her images are just powerful. Yeah, it's incredible that they were allowed to take those images, and I, I guess the lesson we learned from uh, the the nineteen forties, you know, internment camps is uh, don't let anyone into the camps today to take pictures, so that history will remember it. Well, it's kind of interesting. Dorothy Lang and a few other photographers were hired by the War Relocation Authority, who know those that that was the government. Entity that uh, the ran the camps, and they were hired to document the whole um, removal and then the the placement of people living in the camps. And what was the theory behind it? I mean, was it that we thought they they were you know that they were going to attack us from within? What was the what was the justification? Well, I think there's a there's a lot of there's racism, um, a lot of prejudice, and you know it was a breakdown of the um, of the constitution. You know the failure of the government to uphold the Constitution, and you know in wartime hysteria, you know picking on one race, um, that led that led to this to them being removed from their home on the whole West Coast. One hundred ten thousand Japanese Americans, two thirds of them were American citizens. 
Yeah, I mean that that's just incredible. The thing is, is you know, as someone who who is an activist and and and, uh, and and believes in you know people's civil rights, I I can't imagine that going unnoticed, uh, and without people you know you know speaking out against it. Yeah, I mean back back in the day, you got to remember the nineteen forties. Um, there we just had radio and we just had newspapers, and they didn't have anybody really out to speak out for them and and come to their side to. Uh, Stop this from happening. I mean, um, the FBI determined that there were, they were no threat, but there was so much other pressure that um, the president signed this executive order and, yeah. and removed them from their home. So basically, people just you know disappeared. They were they were living their lives, you know, uh, running businesses, working, raising their families, and they just they're gone. Yeah, I mean, I've had I have over sixty-one photographs that are in the National Archives that I have found exact family person or the family members from that family in those photographs and uh, we're telling the before and after story so sometimes i photograph the same person in the same place that we're they're they're photographed in 1942 or you know um sometimes i've, I've had to just go where they were and photograph them and you gotta remember a lot of these people are now in their 80s and 90s right and and like 17 of the people i've have photographed over the last um decade have uh, passed away already I mean, so you you basically documented history. I mean, as as I was looking through the book, and it's it's a powerful book with really incredible photographs because you you went back and basically used the exact same camera and the exact same film that they that they used back then, so that the photographs you know they actually look the same, other than that these people are you know you know all these years older. Yeah, almost seventy years older. Yeah, I did. I mean, back in the day, they used a four by five camera and black and white film, and I used the same type type of camera, four by five film camera and black and white film, and I wanted that marriage, that the juxtaposition of the before and the after picture, to have a marriage to to feel the same, but even though they're different. Now, you you use this this Japanese word to kind of capture the strength, I guess, or the the spirit of the people who survived in this, and and I'm probably going to butcher it because I'm terrible with uh, with words, but a gambadi is that right? Yeah, gambate, which means, you know, um, gambate means um, triumphing over adversity, never giving up, always trying to do one's best. And I think that really came to to define not only their spirit, but, you know, what they did for their families and 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 the future generations. I mean, because, you know, ultimately, I I don't know how I would feel if my country locked me up and stole all my stuff. I, you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you look at the picture of these people and, you know, these are, these are proud people who have gone on to do, uh, to do, you know, many things over their lifetime. I don't know how you would, you would respond from that or, or recover from that. I don't know. I mean, a lot of them were very patriotic. They wanted, a lot of them wanted to join the, uh, the army right after Pearl Harbor. Um, and then they couldn't because the army, the, the government banned them from, changed them from a U.S. citizenship into an enemy alien. So they couldn't join the army. But like I had an uncle already in the U.S. Army. There's a lot of other people I've met that were already in the service. And then there was people that wanted to join right afterwards and they couldn't. They weren't allowed to because um, they wanted to fight for America. And that was their country. Yeah. So when you talk to these people, because you've done a bunch of oral interviews as well, you know, what were, what were their responses to, to one, one being taken? And then, you know, that moment that they're released back, you know, what, what was that like? Well, you know, I photographed this one gentleman, Mitt Kojimoto, and he was 19. And, and there's a picture of him in San Francisco sitting on the street at, the, at, the, at this location where everybody's going to be taken away with his luggage. And he just looked so forlorn, 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 alone, you know. 
And but he said what he said was, you know, we're being kicked out of San Francisco. And he goes, it was kind of shocking because you grew up thinking you have certain rights of liberty and and justice. And he goes, the sitting there was disheartening. And he really wished that somebody would come and save us, you know. And he goes, we were citizens, citizens, and then they were not. And then he went on to join the the Japanese American. There's a segregated Japanese American U.S. Army unit called the 442nd Combat Regiment, and they fought in Italy and in France, and they were one of the most decorated units during World War II. And and he also won a Bronze Star for his bravery. Yeah, I mean, you know, the lessons from this, and you know, we we see this over and over again. I mean, you know, the, the country has turned its back on on segments of the population who go and do great things for the country, and then you know, years later, then we go, oh, how wonderful they are. Well, how about we not do that? These horrible things to begin with. Yeah, I mean, and then you know, one of the other gentlemen, I, I, I discovered um, from Sacramento, he was actually he was one of the co-discoverers of the genetic cause of sickle cell anemia. When he was with working with Linus Pauling at Caltech after right after the war, wow. it's really amazing these people I've I've, I've found and so, the stories and, and everything they've overcome. So you know, bitter, angry. I mean, any of those emotions, or did they just move on and and pick up and and, and live their lives? Well, a lot of them, like maybe, like there was a one family. They were in Hayward. Um, they had uh, he had a the father had a successful nursery. And so they leave, they had they left it in the care of somebody to take care of while they were gone. So when they came back, the guy had who had taken care of it sold it from under him. So they had no home to come to and no business to come home to. So the, their father really felt the injustice of what had happened. Even I mean, before they when they went to camp and then when they came back, and he ended up becoming a, a gardener just to support the family. But his daughter, who's the one I interviewed, she was um, she became a school teacher. And but she would she could never really talk about the incarceration because that's a subject that the family just didn't talk about at home because it was so painful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a horrible tragedy. But again, it's another one of these lessons we just uh, I guess we haven't learned yet. Yeah. And I'm hoping through the book, I mean, people, you know, a lot of people I've talked to from all over, like my East Coast friends, people in the South, they said, you know, we really didn't learn this in high school. And um, I'm hoping that this this story in the book, in my exhibit, will, you know, enlighten and um, educate people. And, and, and like most of my subjects said, they don't want this to happen to anybody else. And they, they really want to tell their story so this doesn't happen. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there's some horribly tragic stories in there as well. I mean... Um... Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> there's um, there's, these, there's this famous Dorothy Lang photograph of these two women doing the Pledge of Allegiance in San Francisco in their little school. They're like seven years old. So... I've come to learn later on that um, one of the, both of them, their parents were arrested right after Pearl Harbor. One of them, their father was a businessman in San Francisco in Japan, like a grocery store. And the other uh, woman's mother was a taught Japanese language, you know, just as a school. So they arrested her because she was a school teacher. And the tragic thing is the one with the school teacher, she, her mom passed away and she didn't see her mom until they brought her back to the internment camp in, in the Topaz, camp in the middle, you know, in the south of Salt Lake City in the desert. And it's really incredible because she says, you know, she hadn't seen her mother, mother that whole time. And then and then they had the funeral there, but she was a child. And she and she she goes, but the real incredible thing was she said, I didn't have any bitterness. And I was like, holy, 
How could you? I mean, wow. How could you not? I mean, blown. yeah. I have no idea. I, I look, and this was for this. This wasn't just a couple of days. This wasn't a weekend camp. This was a long time internment. Oh yeah, they, most of the people there from, you know, most people left the West Coast in the, um, April of 1942, um, and then they were held until you know uh, near the uh, end of the war in 45. And some people were actually held longer until 1946. And what did they do? I mean, what were these? Do you go into much about what the conditions of these camps were? Oh well, yeah. Most of the, well, um, as you know, um, most of these camps are temporary. They're set up very quickly. They're wood frame buildings with tar paper on the outside, so there's no insulation. Um, there's cracks in the floor, and they're in the, set out in the middle of these. Most of them, like in desolate desert areas, Utah, um, eastern. Um, the Sierras by Death Valley, one in Northern California, Wyoming, a um, couple in Arkansas, one in Colorado, Idaho, and you got to remember that the, there's they they only have like a coal stove to warm that whole building. There's no insulation in the desert, and then the wind would blow, and all this you know part you know sand and everything would get inside their buildings and and, and uh, permeate their hair, their clothing, everything. I mean, it's just, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing. And uh, I, you know, it's one of those things where you go again, and I keep coming back to this because we're, we're unfortunately living a portion of this in somewhat, not the exact fashion, but somewhat, uh, you know, similar uh, right now. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm hoping that your book, and I hope people will take a look at it uh, behind the, behind barbed wire, searching for Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II. We'll make sure we get links out so folks can p- take a look at this. It's an incredible book and a well worth uh, taking a look at. I've been just just mesmerized by the the pictures and, and reading some of the stories and stuff. Um, it's it's just incredible. But I'm hoping that people will look at this and 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 see the you know the, the tragedy and say you know maybe maybe we not do this again. Yeah, and you know I'm real. I and the book is based on my traveling exhibit, which is called Gambate. Um, Legacy of an Enduring Spirit. It's it just finished a run at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles for five five months. Before that, it was in um, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and I had one picture um, last year in the Smithsonian. But I'm trying to get it in more places, like in the South, um, East Coast, you know, um, just Midwest, more places, so people could see these, read and see these stories, and hopefully be affected by them, and and hopefully. Nothing like this can happen again, or they'll speak out to protect somebody else that might be, um, this hit, you know, that could be happening to them too. Yeah. Uh, last question I've got for you. And anytime I see someone who writes one of these books, and, and, and unfortunately, there have been, uh, you know, too many of these recently. Uh, anything that jumped out at you that you go, that's just imprinted on my soul and I'm never going to forget? You know, it's, what's imprinted at me is like, I, my parents really didn't talk about the story. My family didn't, you know, when I was a Boy Scout, an Eagle Boy Scout, so camping was, you know, you go camping, right? It's fun, but their their idea of camp, is, this camp was not fun, because when we were kids, they'd go out, we'd, they'd be in the communities, hey, which camp were you from? And I know, I didn't know what they were talking about, you know what I mean? And they'd say, oh, I was in Topaz, or I was in Poston, but, you know, the, the, the hardships that they faced, and how it broke up the family uh, structure, and spread everybody across the United States, a lot of Japanese Americans end up in Chicago or in East Coast and Jersey area. Um, it just spread everybody out, and, and a lot of people were afraid to come back to their homes, you know, in their communities because they're still they face racism when they came back home too. Uh, it's sad. 
Uh, but hopefully by by writing a book like this one, and I hope people will take a look at it, uh, maybe we end some of that and we move forward. Paul, I appreciate the time. Uh, great work. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Rick, for your time. I really appreciate you spreading the word and sharing my work. Yep, Excellent stuff. Great stuff, Paul. Thanks so much. Again, the book uh, Behind Barbed Wire, Searching for Japanese Americans Incarcerated During World War II. Uh, we'll get links out. Uh, really just a fantastic book. Uh, quick break. Right back. Stick around. Thank you.